Warning. This week's Drabblecast is a little disturbing, so if you're a pansy, why not use this time to finish rewatching your new DVD box set of the Gilmore Girls? That zany mother-daughter pair sure get themselves into some madcap situations, don't they? <laughs> it's a good thing they have each other, though. Anyway, speaking of crazy family situations... Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 92. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. I'm gonna hop right into the good stuff this week, because we're already running behind and because I'm lazy. So here we go Drabble time. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com, and maybe we'll grease up our latex gloves and shove it in our show somewhere. Our Drabble this week is called Tainted, and it's written by Saul Lemerand, a 27-year-old student living in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Saul's work has appeared in the Sheepshead Journal of the Arts, the online horror journal Down in the Cellar, and the horror webzine Necrotic Tissue. Simon was covered in blood. He stood over the body of his best friend, with smoking shotgun in hand. I had to do it, he thought. His blood was tainted. But now that tainted blood was all over Simon, and he knew that there was only one thing left to do. Pressing the barrel of the shotgun under his chin, he closed his eyes. Praising the crime scene, Detective Chavez observed the baggies, pipes, lighters, and needles, and chuckled to himself. He asked his partner, <laughs> Hey, why is it every meth head I see, dead or alive, always looks like a zombie? And now, a Drabble public service message. This is a brain. And this is a brain on drugs with feta cheese and baby spinach. Any questions? Alrighty then. Can I start you folks off with an appetizer? Crab dip, perhaps. Our feature story this week is called Synesthesia by J. Allen Pierce. Mr. Pierce's work has appeared in Kaleidotrope, Dreadnought Review, and here in the Drabblecast archives with stories The One That Got Away, episode 18, and The Beekeepers, episode 39. This week's story will also appear in print at Fear and Trembling magazine, so keep your eye out for that. So without further ado, Synesthesia by J. Allen Pierce. I wake up to the sound of Emily screaming. I smell something burning. I reach out and clench silk fabric in my fist and recognize the texture of my bedspread. It's wrapped around me like a cocoon. What's that noise? Some Jurassic howl from afar. Eerie. Air horns. Emergency sirens. What the hell is going on? Why is Emily screaming? Sweat stings my eyes. I kick and tear at the cocoon around me. Emergency sirens. Helicopters. 
I hear my daughter scream again, a scream that I could never have imagined she was capable of. I pull myself from the sheets. The world around me is a deep magenta color, as if I'm looking through some filter. I'm covered in blood. I look outside my bedroom window and see a damp, gray sky. Below it, a paved road spills over a hill towards our house. A flood of memories rush through me. They called it synesthesia. It's when your senses got mixed up. You started to hear colors or taste sounds. Extreme boosts of adrenaline were released to the synesthetic stage, triggered by perceived environmental stressors, intense delusions of strange scents, colors, tastes, and sounds. This adrenaline boost, accompanied by the panic of sensory overload, made the afflicted dangerously strong and unstable. The reports on television had said that synesthesia was one of the final stages of affliction, before things inside got really confused and the victim became lost in some hunger. Her reports didn't have much time to tell us how to prepare for it or what to do if someone you knew became afflicted. Just a foreboding prescription to isolate yourself under all circumstances while authorities dealt with the situation. That's when we lost power. Emily and I had been sitting in the darkness in the living room waiting for Mommy to come home. Jessica had been at work when all hell broke loose and everyone was sent home to be with their families. I'm stuck in traffic on 425, she said. I'm coming home as soon as I can. Keep Emily with you. She stopped answering her cell phone after that call. Emily had been crying endlessly ever since. When's Mommy coming home? Is she okay? She's fine, honey. Mommy's just stuck in traffic. We sat by the window for hours, waiting. I called every few minutes, always six sinister rings until the voicemail picked up. Then she appeared. She was walking slowly over the hill toward our home, the mottled gray sky sprawling over her like an immense, sodden newspaper page. Where was the car? We ran out to meet her. Mommy! cried Emily as she sprinted towards her mother. Jessica reached down to pick her up. She lifted her daughter from the ground and buried her face in Emily's hair. Jess, where's the car? I asked. I had an accident. Oh my god, are you okay? Did you walk all the way home? Yes, she replied, pulling back her daughter with a confused look in her eyes. Emily, what's all over your face? She asked. Emily looked up, mystified. Your face is bright red, Munchkin. Did you paint yourself? Emily furrowed her brow. No, Mommy. Jess, where was the accident? Was anyone hurt? Jessica put Emily down and stared awkwardly at her daughter. She began to shake. Someone 
pulled me from the car, she muttered, her gaze turning to the pavement. Her voice trailed off, leaving the thought unfinished and suspended in the air. Jess, let's get inside. She turned to look at me with cold, unblinking eyes. Dark eyes, like a spider. I smell something burning, she whispered. Jessica turned and looked up the street, over the hill, exposing the back of her head. There was a large area right behind her left ear where the skin was pulled back. A red dripping wound yawned open. Slivers of wet tissue clung to mats of her hair. So many colors, she murmured. Emily, go inside, I said softly. She looked up at me confused. But mommy... Emily, get inside the house now. Emily backed off, unsure. I looked my daughter in the eyes. Now! As she sprinted for the front door, Jessica crooked her neck and turned around to face me. Her eyes were filled with a strange determination. Jess, I said, backing away. Are you okay? The words escaped my lips automatically. I knew that she was not okay. I had seen enough of the reports on television to know what was happening. I had heard the sirens and helicopters in the distance. Something horrible was taking place in the world. Something horrible was taking place in Jessica. Like a statue, my wife stood in the center of the street, sniffing the wind. I wasn't sure what to do. Suddenly, without warning, Jessica lunged forward and bolted down the street towards me. She was so fast. I turned to run towards the house, but felt her nails on the back of my neck even before reaching the front lawn. We tumbled into the grass, frantically struggling to pin each other down. I rolled over onto my back as she wrapped her legs around my torso, her unblinking insect eyes fixed on my face, her mouth snapping at my neck like some vicious lizard. With all my strength, I pushed her forehead away from my face as she clawed at my arms. Foam fell from her mouth in clumps. I couldn't believe how strong she was, how determined. She was fighting with utter abandon, flailing and thrashing on top of me like someone being drowned. Then I heard Emily scream from the porch steps. Mommy! No, I thought. Stay on the porch. Emily ran to us, shrieking. I held out my arm. Emily, stay back! Jessica dove forward, using the opportunity to bite down tightly on my shoulder with snapping jaws. Intense pain gripped my skull and shot down my spine. I grabbed Jessica by the hair and pulled with all my might, but she fastened her jaws even tighter. Like a wild dog, she shook back and forth, violently tearing free a mouthful of my shoulder. White-hot pain blasted through me as I used my free arm to club her in the skull with everything I could muster. She fell back into the grass, blood and sinew swathed across her face. I scrambled to my feet and grabbed Emily by the arm, dragging the screaming child up the steps and through the front door. I slammed the door shut and hit the deadbolt, grimacing as my open shoulder wound leaned against the heavy oak. Peering through the peephole, I saw Jessica on her feet again, tearing across the front lawn towards our house. She hit the door with full force and was sent sprawling backwards into a hedge of azaleas she had just planted two days ago. She howled like something dying in the wilderness. 
Emily, get in the bedroom, I commanded. Come with me, Daddy, she begged. I've got to lock the doors and windows, sweetie. Go now, I'll be right there. She looked at me anxiously, but nodded and ran down the hall to the bedroom. I proceeded to our garage entrance and locked the back door, snapping down windows along the way. Blood trailed behind me, dripping from my clothes and staining the carpet. Jessica had bitten deep. My vision began to blur. I became increasingly exhausted. I stumbled down the hall, knocking over pictures as I bumped drowsily into walls. I pushed open the bedroom door, and Emily looked up from her crouching position near the bedpost. Relief washed over her face. It'll be alright, honey, I said, as I collapsed onto the bed and passed out. I squint, blinded by strange purple light that floods in from the bedroom window. The light pushes deep into the base of my skull, like two thick fingers forcing themselves into my eye sockets. Strange that one could be blinded by light. There are sirens and helicopters in the distance, and I smell something burning. Is there a fire? Daddy! cries Emily from behind me. I turn and see the blurred form of my daughter clutching the bedpost. I focus my eyes and finally see her face. She looks as scared and confused as I am. And then I remember. I remember it all. Emily, are you okay? Emily does not answer. Her eyes, full of terror, look beyond me. She screams, clutching the bedpost tighter, beating her feet against the floor. I turn back to find a blood-soaked Jessica sliding in through our large, unlocked bedroom window, writhing back and forth like a snake shedding its skin. She looks up at me from the floor with those spider eyes and gurgles. Then she looks through me, past me, uninterested. She sees Emily by the bed, and her expression changes. She makes another gurgling sound, and a bubble of blood forms at her lips and pops. Like a wounded animal, she lurches forward and clumsily tries to pull herself up from the floor with the help of a wooden chair. The chair collapses, and she topples back down to the blood-soaked carpet. She is wounded, bleeding profusely from the back of her head. She manages to regain her balance, and her face whips back towards Emily, jaws quivering. She howls, a primal, terrible sound that is vicious and inhuman. Emily slumps to the floor, retreating to some safe haven deep inside herself. I watch. I do not react yet. Something is happening to me. The pain is lessening. It was once a hot burn radiating intensely from my shoulder. Now, it is magenta, and it fills the room around me, a warm, pretty color. The smell of burning 
The sound of sirens, balmy, wet blood, they're all present in some sense but no longer entirely distinct from each other. I notice that my blood has not been absorbed yet into the silk bedspread below me. Rather, it has pooled together into salty little ponds. I taste the salt with my fingertips. I clutch a dry fold of the bedspread with a wet, trembling palm, and its voice is soft in my ear, a spongy yellow whisper. I turn to see Jessica stumbling forward, lurching at Emily. She grabs the child's hair and whips her head back. No, my mind cries out in defiance, but the word itself stays sealed behind my lips. I spring from the bed with astonishing speed and reach for Emily. I seize my daughter by the arm and tear her from the bedpost, leaving Jessica with a handful of matted hair. Emily stares at me blankly, lost in some dark cleft of consciousness. Jessica snarls and lunges forward. I fall back under her weight and Emily spills from my arms onto the floor. Even now, as things change inside me, I am amazed at the strength and speed of my wife. She tries to twist away from me, but I hold her firmly. I feel dull pain, ivory colored, as her teeth bear down on my clenching wrists. Her head flays back and forth and a large piece of my forearm comes free in her jaws, showering her hair and face with my blood. Reaching forward, I clasp my other hand around Jessica's neck, pinning her to the ground. Unearthly sounds spill from her tattered red lips and she grapples wildly with torn, bloody fingernails. I look at my daughter, unmoving and expressionless, like a corpse in the corner. But she is alive, and this snarling, scratching thing below me must not have her. Emily is mine. I squeeze tighter around Jessica's neck, and she kicks and claws at me ferociously. Surges of purple and blue light blind me, even as I close my eyes. She is unbelievably strong, mindlessly driven by hunger and rage, but I do not release my grip around her throat. My own skin feels distant and rubbery, and I do not feel her scraping nails or gnawing mouth, but rather I hear them as shrill and dissonant arpeggios in my mind. I will protect my daughter from this animal for as long as I am able, even if that is only for a few more seconds. And what then? What happens when I too lose my senses? Will I continue to struggle and bleed for Emily, not to save her, but to have her for my own? How long will Jessica and I thrash about, chewing and scraping each other on this blood-soaked carpet, before one of our frayed figures triumphantly heaves a tattered claw past the other, lustily clenching a chunk of matted hair, belonging to our beautiful child? Outside, I see men gathering in rows on the lawn, and they have weapons. There is a large armored vehicle with the word containment printed in bold white lettering on the side. They are shouting things that I no longer understand. Emily is curled up on the floor with her eyes closed. Even if I could tell her to run towards the men outside, she would not be able to hear me. 
I stare at her for a moment, oblivious to the fact that beneath me Jessica has nearly skinned my wrist to the bone with her nails and teeth. Deep magenta fills the entire room like smoke, but through it all I can still make out Emily's shape, stooped in the corner. No, she is my daughter, I remind myself. I don't have long now. Pain is a sinister shade of purple. Siren's smell of distant burning. Love is a ravenous and unbearable hunger. I pull Jessica from the carpet while she lashes fiercely in all directions, my mangled arms barely holding her. The temptation to look at Emily one last time slinks into my mind, but I know that I must not. Clasping Jessica tightly to my chest, I heave her high into the air. I race towards the bedroom window and charge through it, sending us both into the front lawn with a shower of broken glass. I look up from the lawn and see that the sky, the trees, even the men with their weapons pointed towards us, are all silent and colorless. Together, Jessica and I marvel at the desolate black and white world silently spinning around us, before our eyes fix on the quick gestures of those armed men standing above us. Their muzzles flash, and as I look down at my wife for the very last time, I see and feel blinding light surrounding everything, even her dark spider eyes. Oh man, let me tell you, zombie fights described in first-person narrative make for a happy norm, but still a lazy norm. I don't feel like doing story feedback this week. Can we just double it up next week? Okay. Hey, you know we've got Drabblecast t-shirts, right? I'm just saying. I mean, if you want one, you can check out our t-shirt section at the Drabblecast discussion forums under t-shirts, or you can email Drabblecast at yahoo.com saying... Hey, I want a t-shirt. Or, you know, I mean, if you just want to donate to us because you think we rock, and because we'd have to stop doing this if we didn't get donations from people who thought we rocked, just go to our webpage, drabblecast.org, and check out our two shiny donation options. You can sleep happy tonight knowing you gave us a one-time donation, or you can sleep happy every night knowing you subscribed for $5 a month. It's either one, no pressure, really. Or, you know, I mean, it's tough times we're living in right now, and nobody's going to cast the first stone. If you fit into that 8% miserly, chump-ass, tightwad demographic that Feedburner reflects in our listenership, or that 2% Sasquatch demographic, you just simply blog about us or tell your friends. Nobody's going to judge you. You got nothing to worry about, because all of our content is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means that not only are there no derivatives, but that if you're a Yeti, you can share this with all of your abominable friends as long as you don't charge them for it or change it. And if they're like, <laughs> listen, I appreciate the effort, but I'm a Sasquatch. I live in a cave. I don't have a player that can play that format. Just tell them, Drabblecast has a separate Sasquatch-friendly MP3 feed that you can subscribe to by going to their main page. Just go there, bitch. 
Our staff is made up of co-editors, Kendall Marchman, whose sense of touch is very sensitive. Just try blowing on his shoulder and watch it pop out of joint. Luke Coddington, whose sense of taste is very good. Ask any man. And yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that friends don't let friends eat brains.